Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Much appreciated. If you brought your Bible, please open with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be starting there, but we're going to be bouncing all over the Scripture this morning because that's what I like to do in this particular series. Uh, We are continuing our series on the church. Uh, The initial idea on this series was way back in the dead of winter. Remember at the height of all of the, the COVID explosion that was happening in the midst of our city and even throughout the country, uh, just the, the shepherds and pastors as we were thinking and praying through what our church needed next was we were just hoping and praying that that season would subside, that the spring would come and that we would be able to renew our focus on, on who we are as a church, where we're going according to what God has said in his word for us. And, and that was the plan. And so I mapped out the series many months ago, and at the same time, we were working in the, we were working with the governing board and pastors and shepherds regarding our church structure and things like that, but I had no idea, nor was it in the cards, that it was all going to line up perfectly for the announcement to happen this week and for me to be speaking on the very topic that we made the announcement on. Uh, so if you're wondering the reasons why we're making the changes that we are proposing to make, you can read the letter. It's a very long letter, and because I'm a very long-winded pastor, as all of you know. And uh, if you're wondering the biblical and theological reasons for why we are making the changes, you came to the right service this morning. Um, and uh, I just really thank the Lord for lining up everything so precisely for us so it can be on our minds, we can think it through, we can pray it through, and, and go in the direction that we believe God is leading us as a church. Uh, before we get, dig into the details of the, the Scripture and our understanding of the church, let me, let me just ask a question to the married couples, or, or potentially the, the widows in here, those who have been married at, at some point. Uh, did you remember what it was like before you were married as you were thinking and envisioning what it was going to be like when you were married? Now, a faithful pastor, a faithful church leader, a faithful Christian couple will, will seek some advice, won't they? They'll, they'll seek some counsel, they'll, they'll, think, they'll, they'll seek some people to speak into their lives regarding what their vision of the future looks like as a married couple. And you begin to start asking each other questions about, you know, where are you going to live? What, what church are you going to worship at? How many children are you going to have? which is always a fun discussion, is it not? I remember Andrea and I being in uh, the, the pastor's office at Chillicothe Bible Church in central Illinois as he was leading us through uh, our understanding of what it means to be married and talking us about our expectations and our vision for the future of what it means like to be married. And uh, the pastor just kind of threw it out there for us and said, so are you guys thinking about having kids? And I said, 
yeah, we like them. That sound, I was a kid at one point. Uh, we like children, so why not? And then the pastor said the follow-up question, well, how many do you think you would like to have? And without hesitation, I gave my answer that I gave to everybody up until that point. We are going to have 11 children. Andrea already knew that I was going to say that because she had already had the pale face uh, expression the first time I answered in that direction. And she said, "Uh, not with me, you're not. But I would answer 11 children because I need a full soccer team. A starting lineup from 1 to 11. Now, in the Lord's providence, we have two children, but as a compromise, I get to coach both of their teams in soccer. So it's like I have 26. But as you are thinking and praying through what the future might look like, you you rest on certain uh, things that that are are rock-solid foundations for you as you move forward into your marriage. This is what we did as a church through this series. As we opened up the series on the church, we just simply sought the Lord in prayer. So God birthed the church through prayer, and as we are going to be thinking about what the church is, let's be a people who pray. So we taught through uh, how prayer was used in the early church in Acts, and then we spent an extended time period after the service was done just seeking the Lord together, and the overwhelming majority of people who were in our service that week stayed behind to just simply seek the Lord in prayer. And it was a rich and meaningful time to come before God and ask him, God, what is your vision for our church in this crazy 2022 world? Then the next week, we walked through the the biblical vision for church, that the church is called to be a worshiping community that is centered on the word, that is empowered by the Spirit that is committed to God and to one another, that holds fast to sound doctrine, that lives on Jesus' mission as dual citizens of both heaven and earth. Did you memorize that yet? There's a test next week, so make sure you study up. But no, we said this is the biblical vision of what the church is called to be. And then last week, we, we talked about what growth looks like. That God is is primarily concerned first with our growth in our holiness, our devotion to him, and in our togetherness, our unity to one another. And before we talk about numbers and church growth and converts and making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, before we talk about that, we need to make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord, committed to him in holiness, and together as a church in unity. But in order for that to be accomplished, we also need to look at how the church is organized. The metaphor that I've been using for the church is a family of strangers. A family who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, adopted into God the Father's family that may not look, talk, or act like one another, but they have a unity in faith and a desire to grow in holiness together. They are a family of strangers. Well, today, we've already looked at the vision of a family of strangers. We've looked at the growth of the family of strangers. Today, we are going to see that the church is an organized family of strangers. It's an ordered, organized family. 
And uh, if you want the big idea of just what we're trying to communicate here together this morning, it is this, that the church should be organized so that it flourishes. Just as if you plan to have 11 children, you need to talk about it way beforehand. And you need to make sure that your wife is on board. And you're not just uh, making up uh, something inside of your head that uh, you desire to, to have happen. And then you need to back order that and, and uh, organize your life to make sure that you can provide for 11 children. In the same way, the church, as it's birthed by the Spirit of God, as it receives a biblical vision of what the church is supposed to look like, as we commit ourselves to growth, we as a church also need to organize ourselves so that the growth and holiness and unity flourishes. And that's the ultimate heart behind where we are going in our church and the changes that have been placed before you as a church. Uh, but before we get into how the, the, the church was birthed, I want us to take a look back at what Jesus' vision for his own ministry that would be carried forward by his church after his death on the cross and his resurrection that he announced in his inaugural address in the gospel according to Luke on the Sabbath in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. You uh, may probably have this portion of Scripture memorized. He opens up the scroll that Isaiah had written in the synagogue, and he proclaims this in verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set the liberty of those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This would not have been a big deal had Jesus just read this scroll and closed it up and, and said, thus saith the Lord, and they continued in their worship in the synagogue. But it was after he read the scroll that set the entire synagogue in an uproar. These are people who knew him. He had been raised as Joseph's son in Nazareth. They had known who he was and who he wasn't. And Jesus says this in his own local synagogue with all the people who know them. And he says this in verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was announcing to the synagogue and to the entire world that prophecy that Isaiah made hundreds of years ago, yeah, that, that's about me. I'm here to proclaim the good news to the poor. I'm here to set liberty to the captives. I'm here to do this messianic task that God had proclaimed through Isaiah. It's me. And the rest of the gospel, according to Luke, Jesus does exactly this. And they murder him for it. But his murder wasn't just because of religious opposition. His murder was to forgive the people of their sin, to atone for sin. Three days later, he raises from the dead, and the Spirit comes and pours out uh, 50 days after that, and the church is born. But it's also important to notice that in Luke chapter in Luke chapter 6, after Jesus began his ministry and began calling disciples to himself to follow him, that he appointed 12 to be designated as his apostles. Apostle is just a word that means sent 
one, a commissioned one that is going to be an ambassador on behalf of someone else. He appoints them to fulfill, to carry on his mission, both as Jesus was alive and then once the church was birthed by the Spirit. And the passage that we read last week establishes the role of the apostles in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It says this, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus launches this, inaugurates this new age that is going to begin with Messiah. He is going to die on the cross for sin, be raised from the dead. He's going to pour out his spirit and the apostles are going to be eyewitnesses to that resurrection and are going to be proclaiming the good news of the gospel, be making disciples and laying the foundation for the New Testament church. The apostles themselves would hold the office, the authoritative office of being able to write scripture and accord back with what Je- all that Jesus said and all that Jesus taught to ensure that that, is an, that instruction is carried out in the churches that they plant. Greg Allison, a theologian uh, writing on the church, uh, says this about the authority that the apostles had. He says this, to disrespect apostolic instructions in the church. So if Paul wrote a letter and the the people were to just dismiss it, to disrespect such apostolic instruction based on a, a failure to acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ that stood behind such teaching brought disrespect, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 36 through 38, brought disrespect upon churches and severe judgment, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 4 and excommunication for the erring members, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Another theologian, a New Testament scholar, writing on the apostles' authority in the first century to testify of the resurrection, to witness to the resurrection, and instruct churches according to the ministry of Jesus, the continuing ministry of Jesus through them. Anthony Thistleton writes this about the authority of the apostles. The grounding of apostolic ministry derives from a distinct apostolic status as the founders of the community and as translocal overseers. They were the ones who were planting churches, were writing letters, were offering instructions, saying this is the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus has said. This is what Jesus has done. This is how that works out itself out in your churches. He continues saying this, in the end, we might say the grammar of apostleship rests upon the effectiveness and the transparency of this apostolic witness to that for, for, to that for the sake of which the apostles were commissioned. In other words, the apostles as eyewitnesses, and that was a, that was a, a qualifier to be an apostle, they had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. In order to be an apostle, they had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. They had to faithfully transcribe, faithfully carry out and teach the the gospel of Jesus Christ and plant churches, bring communities together and instruct them according to the word of God. They laid the foundation for the New Testament church. 
All of our scriptures are either in the New Testament are either written by or overseen by an apostle. They are the foundation laying office of the church. But you all know the problem with that, right? There's an expiration date on the apostles. It can only live for so long before they go home to glory. So they needed to entrust the gospel to the next generation. They needed to be able to ensure that once they were gone, once their generation of apostles died off, that the churches would continue to thrive. That the churches would continue to go back to their apostolic witness, would continue to go back to their letters, would continue to go back to their testimony of the resurrection and be able to form communities that are shaped by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God leading. So what did they do to ensure that the, the, that the churches continued to flourish? Thankfully, we're not left hanging, not even, not even close to left hanging. Uh, there's so many examples in Scripture. I'll just do one. In Acts chapter 15, some apostles were, were uh, Paul and Barnabas, were commissioned by the apostles, the, the, the elders in the church, to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, they go and do that, and just God just saves a number of Gentiles. They begin forming churches, plant, planting churches, and all of a sudden some people got wind of this in Acts chapter 15 and were like, in order for the Gentiles to be saved, in order for the Gentiles to experience the blessing of Abraham, in order for the Gentiles to, to truly know the true God, if they truly want to be saved, we got to circumcise them, boys. They got to be circumcised. If not, they're, they're not true followers of Yahweh, of our God. They're not truly saved. So this debate uh, popped up and Paul and Barnabas on apostolic authority said, absolutely not. No possible way. And they testified all the wonderful things that God was doing among the Gentiles, how he was saving so many of them. And he, they, they stood firm and saying, no, if you need to be circumcised, in order to be saved, you might as well go emasculate yourselves. Well, that's what he says in Galatians to the people who make the same argument. But the whole church convened together. All of the apostles got together in Jerusalem and they hashed it out. They talked through the arguments. They talked through what the scripture says. They, in verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. I'll save you, I'll spare you the details, but after deliberation and debate, the, the apostles agreed with one another that circumcision is of no material for salvation. James stands up and he says this in the verse, in verse 19 to conclude things. It's therefore my judgment that we should not trouble those of Gentile, to trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and from things that have been strangled and from blood. Then in verse 22, this beautiful passage says this, at the conclusion of their, their decision, it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and to the whole church. The apostles, the elders, and the whole church agreed and said, yeah, this is what God has done in the gospel. 
Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. But we're still not answering the question of, well, what happens when the apostles die? When those who have eyewitnessed the resurrection are, have passed on? What happens when the apostles' ministry needs, the shelf life has just expired? Well, if we go back a chapter, as Paul and Barnabas were commissioned, we see exactly what they do. In chapter 14, they've already gone through Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Antioch, and they're planting churches in each one of these cities. And after a while for planting churches, it says this in chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. After a while of discipling and, and ministering the gospel, they noticed and, and recognized these men are elders within the church. These men are men of character and stature and, and are able to lead the church even when we are gone as apostles. And they appointed them to continue the ministry of eldership. And as, as you're as you're reading through the New Testament, it's important to know that the, the, the words elder or presbyter or shepherd or pastor, they're, they're all, or, or uh, we'll leave it at those because there's a couple other synonyms, but they just confuse you. There's a bunch of them, and they all are talking about the same office when they're talking about an office within the church. So, so you might ask, well, then how do we understand and recognize who are elders? The ones who have the most money, the most social clout within a particular religious community, the, the ones who can get the most done, who can roll up their sleeves and, and, do, and do the hard work that, that is necessary to be done. Uh, Paul actually gives us the very qualification that he looks for, and he instructs his apostolic delegates, Timothy and Titus, to appoint elders in other cities. If you want to turn with me to First uh, Timothy chapter 3, I preached an entire message message on this this summer. If you want to look back at YouTube, you can, you can go watch the whole thing there. But he gives very specific qualifications for those who are qualified to be elders within a particular church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving, or excuse me, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up and become conceited and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. These are basic Christian characteristics, are they not? Everyone should be growing in a number of these areas. Gentleness. Submissive, submissive, or having, uh, being a good parent, a good father. Not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome. But the two distinctions of the elder that is not 
in other qualifications for the other office that we'll see in a moment, the two distinctions is able to lead, able to, to lead a, a church, and able to teach, able to take the instruction of the apostles that has been written down in, for us in Scripture, that has been testified to and teach and instruct the congregation, the church, in those things. This is, this is also the, the reason why our church has the conviction uh, that, that we don't ordain, we don't place uh, women in the position of, of the office of elder or overseer. Because in chapter 2, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, it says this, starting in verse 8. I then desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, that women, and likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly. Let her learn. Let her learn. Let her be a student. Let her understand what God has said. Let her know her Bible. Let her do so quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, for she was and yet she will be saved through childbearing. Not 11, but childbearing. Come on, that was a joke. That wasn't a good, uh, too serious of a topic, I understand. Uh, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What Paul is getting at here, before he gets into the office of elder, he wants to say, like, just in order for us to be properly ordered as a, as a church, I want us to understand that there's a distinction between the genders. There's men were designed to be men. Women were designed to be women. And as men are growing in the grace and the knowledge of, of the Lord and their leadership and teaching gifts, they should aspire to become an elder, pastor, overseer. Even if it's at a lay level or just within their home, they should aspire to the office of, older seer, of overseer. But in order to form communities that reflect the gospel of the distinction between men and women, just one simple restriction that we're going to place to ensure that the distinction is maintained both now and moving into the, mo, mo, both moving into the future is that the office of elder, overseer, pastor is, is reserved for men. Does that mean that women can't lead and women can't teach? Of course not. There's plenty of women who are fantastic leaders. There's plenty of women who are fantastic teachers. But it simply means that in, in the church, the, the office of pastor, overseer, elder is reserved for men and women can learn all that God has called them to learn under the, the teaching ministry of the local church. But that's not the only office that, that the New Testament prescribes. The New Testament prescribes for the church in order for it to flourish. The second office, he goes right into it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He moves right into it in verse 8. There's, there's also the office of deacon. Uh, the office of deacon is, is built upon the apostles' work in Acts chapter 6. We all remember this passage. Acts chapter 6, the church is growing at, an, at a large rate, and there's Jews that are being saved that are both have a, a Greek background and just simply a, a normal Hebrew uh, Jewish background. And uh, just in the 
normal administration of the church, the Hebrew women or Hebrew widows were receiving money and care and, and love and concern, and the Greek widows, uh, the, the Greek Jews, they, they weren't conceiving, they weren't receiving the same care, love, appreciation, financial assistance. And there was, like there is today, there's complaint. There was complaints that happened, and the apostles were like, well, man, our primary job is to lead and to teach, ministry of the word and prayer. Like, we can't neglect the ministry of the word and the prayer to wait tables to make sure that everybody is, has, is eaten and is provided for. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the church together. We're going to pray, and uh, we are going to designate seven servants to make sure that the, the, these widows are taken care of. This spirit of Acts chapter 6 becomes the, the deacon ministry that Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. And these are the qualifications of a deacon, which a deacon is just a fancy office term for servant. Deacon must likewise be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons and if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ. Jesus. Deacons have very similar qualifications to that of an elder, but they are not tasked with leadership and they are not tasked with the teaching ministry. Also, you probably saw there's a, a clever uh, little line that Paul inserts there in verse 11. The ESV translates it as their wives. There's no word in the first century, there's no feminine form of the word deacon. Uh, there's no female word of deaconess that arrives much later. So many scholars, including myself, I'm just a pastor, not quite a scholar yet, but I'll get there. Um, many scholars believe that this word, uh, wives, it, that the ESV translates wives and some other, some, some other scholars translates wives is just the simple generic form of women. So he's saying that the office of elder reserved reserve for men but the deacon, those who serve in the church, here's your qualification. And if you're a female deacon, a deaconess, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And it's a, on this ground and a few others, but this is the clearest one that I can give you here this morning, that I think the office of deacon is both open to both men and women. Oh my goodness, we're already at 30 minutes, and I'm only a quarter of the way through. We might have to do like Wednesday night Bible study. We might have to just continue to go in so many different ways. Um, every family has an origin story, do they not? Every family has that story of who did what to get your family to where it's at now, right? I was just talking just this past week with uh, a woman who is in our church. Uh, she and her husband have been in our church for a couple of years now, and uh, her parents immigrated from a European country. 
She, even though it was decades ago, she could say with crystal clarity, my dad did this, and then he came overseas here. He worked for this number of years, and then they called him back to, the, to our home country for a number of years, and then they came back. And with crystal clarity, she could tell you the origin story of her family immigrating to the United, to the United States. It was, it was just a wonderful story. That origin story is like the apostles for us. The apostles, they were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They knew what he said. They knew what he did. They, they saw him in his resurrected glory, and they began writing and transcribing and planting churches. Now, when the, the, this woman tells her children about her, uh, her parents, or, and let's just for the sake of the illustration say that her, her parents have passed on, and so they can't directly tell them anymore, that, that when, when she is instructing her kids about the, the origin story, she's passing along the, the story of the faithfulness of, of their family. That's similar to pastor, eldering ministry passing along the story to faithfully instill in the next generation and in the church, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can look back on our history in the, in, in the words of Scripture, say this is what the apostles have witnessed to us, and this now is how this applies in our particular life, in our particular community. The elders are tasked with that. But if we're only praying and preaching, we're far deficient as a church. There's so much that the apostles instruct us to do. And if we don't have dedicated, faithful servants that are giving life to the church, there are going to be a lot of complaining people. And I don't want that. And I hope you don't want that either. In order for us to fulfill the vision of the New Testament church, We need to look back on the witness to the apostles. We need to hold to the testimony of Jesus as our authority. We need to call elders to teach, to lead, to pray, and to shepherd our people. And we need to empower deacons to bring life to our church, to affirm uh, to uh, affirm all of the ministries that God has called us to do. And all of this thrown together must be affirmed by the church, just as in the language of Acts, so that we can say it seemed good to us, to the whole church. The structure of the New Testament church is, is very intentionally simple and intentionally, intention, intentionally simple and flexible. The apostles laid the foundation until they passed away. The elders carry forward the ministry, not by changing one jot or tittle of the apostolic witness, but by faithfully teaching and leading in accordance with it. And the deacons serve to ensure that life is flourishing within the church. So now there are currently two offices in the church. Right now, as, a, as our church, they're just a little confusing as to what they happen. The senior pastor right now, constitutionally, me, I'm the only elder in the Constitution and bylaws. I don't operate that way. I try to make sure that I'm underneath the authority of our, our, our shepherding ministry to ensure that I'm being held accountable. But constitutionally and bylaws, I am a lone ranger. I can do whatever I want, and the only recourse you have as a congregation is if you compel the governing board to call a congregational meeting that puts my job on the line. That's the only recourse that you have 
continually. Yes, there's an annual review. There's an annual review that the governing board is that the governing board is called to do. Uh, but the governing board is, in, is specifically is specifically designed to not handle the spiritual matters. So it'd be a very easy recourse for me to just say, "Well, God told me so," and you don't want that. So in our current structure, I'm the solo elder, and our governing board serves as a semi-deacon board, but it also has the added responsibility of spiritual leadership in the oversight of me. Um, but I already gave you my example of how that would work out. So at best, our system is just confusing, biblically speaking. It's not sinful. It's not heretical. It's just biblically, it's biblically confusing. And so that's why we've taken the steps during a time period of health. There's no major split. There's no huge controversy. Nobody's calling for anybody else's job or anything like that. It's just during a time period of health when we have had, we have had a governing board that's functioned for five years, that has done a fantastic job, that I've enjoyed laboring alongside of for all of these years. It's during this season of health that said, okay, now it's time to review. Not in response to crisis, not in response to somebody or this person or that person leaving the church, but just in response to, it's been five years that we've been living under it, let's review it. Um, so the hard copies, as Scott mentioned, of the new constitution and bylaws that we'll be voting on will be uh, available in the back that you can review and look over, ask questions like, this is, this is a process in which we want to all do together, uh, as I'll mention. Man, I'm long-winded this morning, but uh, this is a process that we all want we all want to do together. So nobody's gonna nobody's gonna be left behind. We have as much time as well. We have a number of months to talk and pray uh, through this, and it's intentionally designed this way so you're not just ramrodded by a pastor's vision, uh, but everybody can get on board with where we are headed and ask the questions that need to be asked. Um, I'll go through this last part quickly because I'm already over time. Uh, but the, the, the question needs to be asked of like, who gets to make these decisions? Who in the New Testament church, who gets to make the decision? Yes, we know that the scripture has final authority, especially uh, churches after the Protestant Reformation, that sola scriptura, the scripture alone, holds the authority. We know that Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church, but when the rubber hits the road, we need to ask ourselves, well, who gets to make the decision for Jesus? Who, who gets to say what Jesus wants in things that uh, uh, the, the, scriptures, uh, the scriptures may either be silent on or the, the scriptures... Uh, the scriptures encourage the exercise of wisdom. So uh, there's three basic ways, and like I said, I could talk about this for the entire, yeah, we could just keep going until the late afternoon, but I know that many of you are just really desiring to get over to Pizza Plus and uh, have yourself some nice pizza, so I'm not going to talk forever on this, but there's basically three ways that the church has settled who makes decisions. Uh, the first is a hierarchy, so it'd be one particular uh, we'll just call it a authoritative figure that oversees a number of churches in a particular region, and a number of those uh, authority figures uh, operate together in a hierarchical in a hierarchical structure that then comes down to make decisions for the local churches. Um, 
There's much more precise ways of describing this, but I want to just talk, talk in very general terms. If any of you uh, have an Anglican background, the, and the Anglican church works within a, within a hierarchical structure of bishops, presbyters, priests, priests rectors, and deacons. Um, if you want to know all of those things, stick around and talk to me afterwards. It'll be fun for me and be punishing for you. Uh, uh, the, the second, the the second is is a council. I just call this one a general a council. This is where a, a group of elders, a, a a team of elders, oversees a church, and then one of those elders represents that church at a. Uh, at a presbytery, which is a group of, uh, like, so there'd be a presbytery of, of uh, Reno, and then one of those elders then uh, represents in, in a synod that's in a region that would be like all of northern Nevada. Then one of those uh, on that synod then goes to the general assembly that would, that would represent it at the national level. Um, any of you, I've already clued you off to which denomination does it this way. Those are Presbyterians that, that, are, that are led and decided in the council uh, that have authority over churches. And our church, the right one, uh, is decided by the congregation. So we, while we desire to have pastors and, and elders and elders lead the church and deacons to serve the church, uh, the, the final authority underneath Christ comes from the affirmation of the congregation saying, yes, it means this seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit to go in this particular Direction And the way that we do that is through a congregational vote to voice our affirmation when it comes to major decisions. If you want to know the details of what the congregation decides on and what the congregation doesn't decide on, get deep into the documents of our Constitution and bylaws, both the old ones and the potential new ones, and it'll either put you to sleep or um, you will come up with wonderful questions moving forward. Uh, like I said, I'm already way over time, uh, but brothers and sisters, I, I entirely believe that God is with us in this, that he has honored our process. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we do know that I believe that God is honored in our process. We invite all of our members to participate fully in the, participate fully in the process, coming to the informational meeting on April 3rd, and uh, be able to affirm one direction or another direction uh, on June 5th. If you are new to this, if this whole church thing is like, oh my goodness, I came on church, I came on Ecclesiology Sunday. Um, just know that we love you. We love being a family together. We, we know that Christ loves you and he is desiring to call you into a spiritual family that will also love you. And the way that we love one another is by organizing ourselves in a way that honors God. And so that no one person is the supreme leader or ruler except for Jesus Christ himself, whom we deeply desire for you to have a relationship with. And if you don't have a relationship with him this morning, talk to one of our members and don't bring up church government. Just tell them that you want to know who Jesus is. It will be a good distraction. Uh, it'll be a main point. It'll be a celebration in heaven. Um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your church. We thank you for how you are working in our church. We ask that you would just be with us through the course of this next season. And we ask that uh, your name would be glorified. We ask that you would be with us as we think and talk and pray through a number of these things that we believe you are leading us into. 
Help us to stay humble. Help us to speak the truth, but do so in love. Help us to understand where you are leading us, to be a loving community of of, uh, servants who are seeking to follow after you. God, we love you and we praise you and we just commit this closing time period to you and to you alone. And we're so thankful that we get to be a family who are joined together, not because of our biological uh, connections, but because of our spiritual unity that we have in through our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.